21CL Radio. Happy Monday morning to you, and welcome to the Education Vanguard. I'm your host, Michael Bull. So happy to have you here today, and thanks for joining me during these podcasts, because without you, this show would certainly not be possible. Today, I've got a super-duper interview. It's with Glenn Chickering. He's a founding member and upper school principal at the Green School in Bali, Indonesia. The combination of the words green and Bali may conjure up the idea of beauty that we have come to expect when we think about or even visit Bali, Indonesia. The popular Bali Green School combines the beauty of Bali, a focus on sustainability, and modern learning practices to create a unique student experience. I talk today with Glenn Chickering, a founding member and upper school principal at the Green School. We enjoy a variety of topics, including the power of experiential learning, giving students freedom to pursue passions, and how having a positive impact on the local community brings learning to life. Glenn uses the term messy learning to explain their pedagogy, and you will enjoy understanding what that means. Glenn is representing the Green School at the upcoming Global Education Leadership Summit in April of 2017. For more information about the summit, head to GELS.Asia. Glenn Chickering, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Well, I am so excited to have you here because I think there's a lot of people out there that have perhaps heard of the Bali Green School, but may not know what it is other than it's green and it's in Bali. Can you tell us a little bit about that school? Sure. A little bit of the history behind it. It it was founded by John and Cynthia Hardy, who are jewelers and had a very successful jewelry business. And it was based here in Bali. And they they used a lot of of inspiration from Balinese artists and craft makers in their jewelry design and uh, built just a wonderful jewelry business. And then uh, John Hardy, our founder, likes to say that that Al Gore ruined his life. <laughs> so after John saw an inconvenient truth, it just really struck a chord with him and really made him think about his place in this world and his children's future and take a good hard look at, at some of the unsustainable systems in our world. And, mm-hmm. and he just wanted to make a difference. He wanted to do something about it. He wanted to give back to the island of Bali and the people of Bali, both of which he loved dearly and uh, wanted a place for his children to have an education that focused on on not only our environment, but just our world in general, and how are we going to turn some of these systems around and make it sustainable. And uh, about the same time, uh, somebody had introduced them to a school concept idea that an educator out of New Zealand had, mm-hmm. and and he was inspired, him and his wife, and they sold their jewelry business, and they used the money to seed green school. Um, with the focus on educating for sustainability and and getting rid of walls in the classroom and getting our students outside and and being really focused on on the environment and sustainability. So initially, perhaps his ideas were sustainability, but now as we listen to you talk, you're talking about actually how the teaching is done. Did, did those two collide at the same time, or do you think as the school began, they people realized that a, a different way of teaching experiential learning? And what have you would be a more appropriate way to go to teach sustainability. I, I think they were walking hand in hand from the beginning. You know, one of John's big things was uh, was no walls on the classrooms. He he just didn't like. He's a designer. He's really into aesthetics. He 
he just didn't like the fact that students went to school in a concrete box, he would like to call them. And he mm -hmm. thought students need to be outside. If we're going to learn to love and protect nature, we have to be in it. And we have to be engaging with it all the time. So the, the Wallace classrooms was part of the concept from the beginning. So I think they walked hand in hand. And uh, the, the, the sustainability aspect, I think, has grown with the school in that we now give equal weight to sustainability of society systems, of our economic models, personal sustainability, health and well-being, um, as well as the environment. So we're really branching out to look at more of the big picture of, of what does sustainability mean and where does it start and, and how do we how do all of our systems interact with each other, our human systems, our natural systems, and influence each other and, and where do we look for our leverage points? All right, so Glenn, did you, when you went to school, did you go to school in a, I know I did, in a box sort of school? I sure did, yeah. Built somewhere in, <clears throat> excuse me, somewhere in the 1950s, I would reckon. Uh-huh. Yep. So, that, so that's why, you know, I want to ask you, so you're a founding member of this of the Green School itself. So, you know, obviously you didn't have that same schooling yourself when you were growing up. What drew you into becoming a founding member of an organization such as this, probably knowing or maybe even not knowing the extent of the dedication and the work it would take to make something like this happen and keep it going? Sure. So I came into teaching as as a bit of a second career. My father growing up and my mother as well had instilled you know, a real love for the outdoors, camping and traveling in me. And so, so I had that aspect in me and, and school never really super engaged me when I was going to school. And I did flirt with studying education when I was doing my undergraduate degree, but, but in mm. ended up going to business and didn't and went into more of a business career, starting small business and whatnot. And, and got a little tired of my first career choice and, and started to revisit teaching again. And so as an entryway, I was like, you know, I'll start substitute teaching in the public school system around where I lived mm -hmm. and, and did that and found that that being in that classroom and the worksheets and the tests and all that were really uninspiring. And then through that started seeking out some alternative teaching platforms. I, I found a summer camp that took inner city students with learning disabilities out into the wilderness for three week stints to do learning there. That started really lighting a spark in me. I'm like, okay, this this is what I'm more interested in. This is more real. And then pursued a few more learning uh, teaching opportunities in that respect. And then uh, took a more traditional job in a public school. And then decided to move overseas for a while with my fiance at the time, my now wife. Mm -hmm. And in that search, we we were zeroing in on Indonesia to live. And I saw Green School before it was open and when it was just a concept and it was just like a spark it was like yes that that's what i'm looking for that's the kind of educator i want to be that's where i believe our education model should go and so i i sent my resume and they called me back and the rest is history i guess I, <laughs> ever since yeah and here you go here I go. So, you know, as a founding member, there's always a lot of challenges in, in the beginning. And I'm, I'm wondering, is, were some of the bigger challenges staying focused on the mission and finding people who agreed with the mission who could go and share it and teach the students? Or was it just the idea of building in Indonesia a school and going through whatever efforts you have to do to do something like that? Yeah, I would think our biggest challenges in the early years were catching up to our ambition. Mm -hmm. We really grand, grand dream. We opened up fairly big for a school just starting in that we opened up 
pre-K through grade eight. So, so we had a broad, broad range of students we had to create curriculum for, and we made a big decision to do that, to create our own curriculum and focus more on the pedagogy, how we teach than the mm-hmm. curriculum. So all that meant that, that we were creating it, right? We we're asking our teachers to create what they were going to teach to the students. We were asking them to, to communicate with each other quite well. So we had it scoped and sequenced through the years and we were asking them to do it all in a place that was still being built at the time. The school was still very much a construction zone. We were in Indonesia, so ordering textbooks we wanted from Amazon or books we wanted for a literature study from Amazon or this wasn't so easy. Couldn't get it delivered here. We'd have to go right. roundabout ways. Things were slow. Our internet connection was close to non-existent, <laughs> pretty much in and out. Uh, yeah, a lot of just very under-resourced and very – very difficult time getting the resources in place and getting everybody on the same page and giving everybody the time that is needed to create curriculum in between their teaching hours and whatnot. So I, I to go back to that, I think that was our biggest challenge that that we've caught up with is is keeping up with our ambition because there's a lot of big dreams and goals and ideas here um, that take a lot of time and space to implement. So you know, you, you know, the important thing is you're focusing on sustainability. Perhaps the exciting thing is the pedagogy that you mentioned that's going on. And in your in the write up before the show, I you know I'm reading through it and you talk about messy learning. And could you talk a little bit about the pedagogy that goes on and and what messy learning looks like? Yeah, thank you. So that's one of our our big, uh, I guess it's one of our learning principles and it's we put it first actually and I was really happy about that being on the team that was creating those and mm-hmm. that one of the issues that we find with with traditional education is that it advances students through the years you know by age 11 they should be able to hit these benchmarks in math and these in literacy and these in science and boom 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 and that everybody if they're learning right, should be progressing along the same ladder, right? right. Give or take, allowing for, for a bit of differentiation and whatnot. But if you're not hitting that mark, then you're labeled uh, a learning disability sometimes that, that, that we just don't really buy into. And so what we're saying is that when you look back on your learning journey throughout your life, you can see that it was fits and starts and tangents and circling back and making connections and plateaus and ahas and new interests. And, and it's just kind of a mess, really, when you put it all together, your personal learning journey. So what we want to do here is embrace that and accept it and, and know that because a student is 11 years old and, and doesn't quite have the math aptitude of all of his peers, does not necessarily mean that they have any type of learning journey. Or, excuse me, learning disability. And so we just want to, to honor that and to say, hey, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's meet everybody where they are on their learning journey. Let's accept that. And, and let's move along at our pace. And those paces are quite a bit different than others. And one way that we address that is starting from sixth grade, we, we mix our So our middle school students, grades six, seven, and eight, Eight, we'll take classes together, right? Uh-huh. And you'll have sixth graders in the same class as eighth graders, and they're elective classes. And then our high school does the same thing. Our classes, you know, we'll have a few uh, foundational math and foundational literacy courses that are, ninth graders are required, but they can get out of them real quickly once they show aptitude. 
And then the rest of the classes are wide open. Ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th graders can all select them, and they're all wide open. How do you find like visitors, people new to the school? Uh, maybe like this, I can imagine the students would say, oh, this is awesome. How do you find people are new to the idea, the experience, the way you're teaching react to it when they see it? And is there, has there been a difference over time between the beginning when people would first see it versus today where maybe it's more accepted? Sure. I think where, what, where we're at today is we've now graduated four classes of students and we've seen those students go out in the world and be successful and be successful at traditional uh, cities and be successful in a wide range of, of vocations. And so people are starting to say, okay, well, I guess you've proved it now. Whereas in our early years, we were asking people to take a pretty big leap of faith and we we're asking people to, to put their students mm-hmm. in our school and trust our our methods and trust our intentions and that this was going to prepare their students to, to excel at other schools. Once they move away, being an international school, it can be fairly transient or being able to prepare our students to engage in university or whatever vocation they decide upon graduation. And now that we have some years behind us and some students out there in the world excelling, I think we're we can relax a little bit more and we can show people look it it with the proof is in the pudding mm-hmm. we've sent a lot of students back to to other more traditionally academically rigor schools and they've done great we've sent students to some very rigorous universities and they're doing great and and people are starting to trust our model a lot more they're starting to believe in it all right, so there, you know, there's lots of schools out there. I mean, there's kind of two things, and we've talked about this before in the world going on with education. One is there's groups like, like your school that says, look, we're just going to do it on our own and start it. And then there's larger existing organizations that are saying, I want to shift, I want to change and become, let's say, more like the uh, do messy learning, for example. What are some of the things you would, if somebody was to come to you for advice and say, hey, how can I make these shifts happen in my school? What would be some of the first things you'd want to talk about with them? I think some of the first things I want to talk about is to to make the learning really authentic, to to create some avenues for students to talk about what their own passions are and what they would like to do, and then find ways to relate that to the learning. And, and I could give an example in that we had a student who was a, a passionate skateboarder and was also Canadian. And so was also concerned about the amount of maple trees that get harvested to make skateboards. And so he decided he wanted to make skateboards out of bamboo, and which is a much more sustainable product. Sure. And so what we did was we just gave him a platform within our learning program to do this, to research it, to make prototypes of his bamboo skateboard, to learn what it takes to market this and get it on the market and to price it and to do all that that needs to be done to start a small business and, and manufacture these skateboards. Mm-hmm. And so... To go back to your question, the advice I would give is to create a space, however small it may be, for some independent learning, for students to to explore their passions and and try. And, and there's a big key here in the importance of failure. Like there's so much learning to be done when you try something and it doesn't work. And and that's another thing that I think we miss when we we worry about exam scores at certain periods along right. the learning journey is that <clears> – <throat> that it doesn't leave room for mistakes. It doesn't leave room to iterate and to take your time and reflect and try again. And so I would say start small, create an hour program, even if it has to be an after-school program, mm-hmm. but 
to students as a chance for you to choose your learning. Uh, give students a time to to bring their art, to bring their passions, to bring their sports, and and find a way that they can use it to either start an entrepreneurial thing or community service or or whatever it may lead to lend itself best to. So do you feel confident that if a school is looking to change, it's starting uh, with what you suggested, which is doing some independent learning. An example, you know, a Canadian kid wanting to build skateboards out of bamboo or whatever, which sounds like a lot of fun. For example, my daughter was really into film. She would have loved more time to do film. Do you think that really can, that, that idea can then spread and maybe infect in a way the rest of the school and change the overall culture over time? Yeah, we, we have seen it do that. You know, we've had a few of these student passion projects that, uh, that have really taken off and really inspired others. We, we have a brother and sister duo who are making uh, T-shirts and hats and, and hoodies and, and basically more like a surfwear clothing store. But they also take a large percentage of their profits from this and buy school uniforms for students in developing communities in India and here in Bali. And they've created this wonderful social enterprise that is really successful. And other students are are inspired by this. And we have a, a bi-monthly farmer's market that is full of stands of students with their entrepreneurial ideas oh, nice. and trying to do this. Um, you know, we have another uh, sister duo who created a campaign to to ban plastic bags on the island of Bali that has inspired some of our students who then left and moved back to the Netherlands or a teacher who moved on to Mexico to start the same campaign there. And now it's going worldwide. So it definitely, definitely takes root and takes hold. And people get really excited about, wow, look what they did. Ooh, I want to do this idea. How can we make that work? And it's, it's a fun culture to be in. You know, I've heard a saying that uh, we run away from work and we run toward art. Would you say the students are doing art in a sense, whether that's building something or what have you, and are running towards it to the point maybe where you have to kick them out of the room at the end of the day? I would say so. I think that that is a good analogy. And even the bamboo skateboards, it's it's running toward a personal expression, right? So I guess art is a personal expression. Mm-hmm. So I think that is accurate. And, uh, and I think it is common to get our students really focused and really engaged to where they kind of lose themselves to the project. And we even have a, we even have a program in our experiential learning, uh, course that's called flow, um, based on oh, the book nice. flow, uh-huh. to where we're just challenging students to like, what is it that you lose yourself in time and that you, you just focus and you're so into that, that the rest of it doesn't matter. And students have to write a proposal to enter this. But if their proposal looks good, then they get four hours uh, on, on Wednesday to to focus on that project, whatever it may be. All right. Well, speaking of, t- of flow, I think we are, we've been flowing along well here. and We're getting towards the end of our time. So I've got a final question I wanted to ask you about. So as you think about what the Bali Green School has done, and can you think, you know, 10 years into the future, what sort of hopes or dreams or visions do you have for what the Bali Green School itself will look like and then also what its mission or vision will look like in other places? That's a good question. You know, I think that we're, we're realizing a lot of that right now. And I think what I would like it to look for, look alike in the future will be a lot more of the same, but a lot more of, of it in place. And, and by that, I mean, some of our programs that we're piloting, that we're experimenting with, that we're iterating through the bugs and the kinks, that we have them down so that there's real obvious entry points for all of our students and 
and and more systems in place for our students that have a little bit more trouble finding their passion or finding exactly what it is that get them going to help them along that journey. Um, but I guess I would say 10 years down the line, I think that I would like it to look a lot like it is now, but with just maybe a little bit more in place for teacher support and teacher development as we're starting to learn what it is we're doing right that really makes it click. So when our new teachers come in, have a really robust professional development in place so that they can fall right into it. Um, we, you know, we have a saying though that our head of academics likes to say is that mm -hmm. we never want to be more than 70 cent complete and frameworked in, right? We want to have 30% of our learning program wide open to opportunistic learning. Um, and a good example is that of that would be Last year, the, the fires in Borneo that are burning largely to clear land for palm oil plantations right. were sort of at a record record low or record high, however you want to look at it. But, <laughs> but as far as air quality index, it was about the worst that it had ever been. And a few of our students really latched onto that and really took hold. And we had a school come visit from that area, Kalimantan, and present to our students of what it was like there. And, and so we had a whole whole program grow up, student-led, student-initiated, to try and do something about these fires in Kalimantan and raise awareness. And they went and visited it and created a whole student movement around it. And so we want to make sure we have room in our program for these types of things so that students and teachers as well can, can follow these passions. I've been speaking with Glenn Chickering. He's a founding member and leader at the Green School in Bali, Indonesia. Thanks so much for your time today, Glenn. Yeah, my pleasure, Michael. This interview was brought to you by 21st Century Learning International. Find us on the web at 21clradio.com. <laughs>